0: Please don't, please don't put that in there. Hello. Hello. I am what's your up? host, Caitlin. Oh, I thought we were going to do some NPR shit, but that's fine. Do it. No, you ruined it. Aw. I love you, though. You know what I'm else gonna you ruin- ruined?
1: No, I want to ruin everyone else today. Hey, Siri! No. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know how many people's phones went off. I mean, no, if you're you listening you know what's going to phone... be worse than
0: that is <laughs> if you go, hey, Alexa.
1: I can't say the other one because i have one and it'll beep and it'll be loud
0: Uh, that's okay i figured out that if i deepen my voice just enough i can get into michael's android by going okay insert most popular search engine here yeah
1: i don't think it goes by like uh voice recognition
0: um it it his does i don't know if that's the general thing because if I say it like myself, it doesn't respond. I have to literally like gruff up and deepen my voice. Mm. But it's very funny when I can get it to do it because I discovered it while he was in the shower and I set all of these like reminders that he was cute.
1: Good. <laughs> oh, something uh, that could possibly be true crime related. Um, I think I was. Yeah, I was working with people at the pool and this one person had a phone that had facial recognition and we found like their profile picture on Facebook and then held it up to the phone and uh, it opened their phone. That's that's some black mirror. So shit. In, c- in case you want to get into somebody else's phone, just get like a good picture of them from the, like their Facebook profile.
0: Mom, please don't listen to this. <laughs> now I've got to turn off. My face ID when I go home.
1: Good. Yep. Um, What are we doing today? What are we talking about? What's going on? Um, We're talking about something completely new,
0: and that's 10 more states.
1: Yep. <laughs> yep, we're still on this. We in it. We're in part three of our 50 states series, and it's going pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. We're like We're like halfway there. We're in a bunch of M's now yeah lemon on a pear
0: (laughs) why don't you start okay why don't i start so we last left off on it was my state that we left on maryland 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 i don't know i i don't know why i was gonna say new jersey because i know we didn't leave off on new jersey because this is massachusetts Yes. um but yes. so we'll start with massachusetts we last left off in maryland now we're heading a little up north And the most popular book, true crime book in Massachusetts, is A Death in Belmont, which is a 2006 novel by Sebastian Junger. And I can feel myself going into full NPR. Um, And it's got a 3.56 out of 5 on Goodreads. And the synopsis is, in the spring of 1963, the quiet suburb of Belmont, Massachusetts is rocked by a shocking sex murder that exactly fits the pattern of the Boston Strangler, Sensing a break in the case that has paralyzed the city of Boston, the police track down a black man, Roy Smith, who cleaned the victim's house that day and left a receipt with his name on the counter. Smith is hastily convicted of the Belmont murder, but the terror of the Strangler continues on the day of the murder, Albert DeSalvo, the man who would eventually confess in lurid detail to the Strangler's crimes is also in Belmont working as a carpenter at the Junger's home in this spare powerful narrative. Sebastian Junger chronicles three lives that collide and ultimately are destroyed in the vortex of one of the most, of one of the first and most controversial, controversial, I can speak, serial murder cases in America. That's from Goodreads. Wow. Yes. And we'll get into that later. Um, Yeah. Now we'll move on to the legend. Mm. I have never heard of this. Okay. To be quite frank. And I've spent a lot of time in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And I have never fucking heard of this, but um, the most popular legend apparently in Massachusetts is that of the Housack Tunnel. Um, never heard of it. Yes. So it it was being constructed over a 24 year period, and during that time, about 200 men died. Oh, and yes, and to the point, like so many people fucking died that its nickname was the Bloody Pit. Oh, yes. Well powerful metaphor Um, not metaphor powerful imagery yes imagery there we go we got it um but so then there was a really bad explosion in like the late 1860s that resulted in 13 miners being trapped inside the tunnel and everybody was like oh they're dead Uh like they're fucking dead they the thing exploded everything collapsed the miners are dead yeah they were not in fact dead ooh yep um it was later discovered that they survived the cave in built a raft to survive the flooding that ensued oh jeez but eventually died from inhaling poisonous gases that were emitted as a result of the explosion yeah which is tragic not as tragic as it could have been because at least they did not starved to death or any of that you know what i mean like if you're trapped there and you know you're trapped and you know no one's looking for it like it could have been worse i will say but still not great not a way i'd like to go no not at all Mm -mm. but basically what the legend is is that these 13 miners haunted the tunnel and that they will you know they do the typical ghost shit they show up when they're not expected to they moan they like they go boo and Uh all of that but yeah That's basically the Hoosack Tunnel slash Bloody Pit. Damn. Yes. It's a little fucked up. Yes, quite spooky. Um, But then next up, we have the 1992 documentary Brothers Keeper. That's the most popular documentary viewed in the state of Massachusetts. Yeah. Which makes a bit of sense because it has a 100% on the Rotten Tomatoes tomato meter and an 88% audience score. You know why else it makes sense? Why? because it was written and directed by bruce sanofsky and joe berlinger oh joe berlinger mm. one of there our
1: favorite true crime documentarians
0: there he goes here he goes again here he is Yeah, he <laughs> out here um but yeah and so you can watch it on netflix or whatever apple streaming service is now every time i see it i go oh that's what it is i'm gonna call it that and then i forget um <laughs> So it's on whatever streaming service Apple has now, where you can watch Haley Steinfeld pretend to be, uh, what's her name, Emily, um, help me, Dickinson. Okay. Um, but the synopsis of the, the documentary is, Bill, Delbert, Roscoe, and Lyman Ward were four barely literate bachelor brothers, aged 59 to 71, living in squalor on their 99-acre dairy farm in Munnsville, a rural town in central New York. Then, on June 7th, 1990, Delbert was arrested and signed a confession stating that he'd suffocated his brother Bill the previous night in the bed they had shared for decades. For 10 months thereafter, Delbert maintained his innocence and the people of Munsville rallied behind him. Not bad. Right. It does sound very interesting to me. I was yeah. like, ooh, how do I not know this one? But again, you can watch it on Apple. You can watch it on Netflix. You can probably watch it elsewhere but those are the big two.
1: But, All right. Um
0: but yeah, and then finally we have the top serial killer which in a shocking turn of events was the Boston Strangler, of course. AKA as I mentioned not 5 minutes earlier, Albert DeSalvo. Mhm. Um and so basically to give a little background, he murdered 13 women in Boston, well in the Boston area, not technically just Boston during the early 1960s, and his victims were Patricia Jane Bullock-Bissett, Helen Elizabeth Blake, Marianne Brown, Sophie Clark, Marie Evelina slash Evelyn Corbin, Joanne Marie Graff, Ida Odes-Erga, Mary Mullen, Nina Frances Nichols, Beverly Sammons, Anna Elsa Leggins-Slessers, Jane Buckley Sullivan and Mary Ann Sullivan Sullivan. Oh, my God. Not Sullivan. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. Um, the last two. There's no relation. All right. So the murders of Margaret Davis also, who was from Roxbury, Massachusetts, in like so that's in the Boston area. And Cheryl Laird from Lawrence, Massachusetts, also in the Boston area. So they fit the right area. And they were also originally attributed To being done by the Boston Strangler, but it was Uh later found that they were unrelated. Interesting. Yes. But um, as mentioned previously with Junger's book, um, DeSalvo confessed to these crimes. He did it while he was being tried for a separate case. And also DNA evidence literally linked him to his last victim. Mm -hmm. And since then, there have been actually parties like... Like people got bored of Clue and have parties trying to investigate the murders and Hmm. they have suggested that they were actually committed by more than one person. Like, yeah, maybe DeSalvo was involved in some, but that it could not have they believe it could not have been done by just him. Okay, so that I thought was interesting, but yeah. nevertheless, DeSalvo himself was sentenced to life in prison for all of the murders in nineteen sixty seven then he escaped, then he was caught, pulled then the bundy he was thrown back in prison, then he was murdered in prison, so not quite pulled a bundy but mm. um, but yeah, we'll get to him. We will definitely yeah. talk
1: about him. this whole series but is just us saying, we'll get to stuff that. we're gonna be getting to. <laughs>
0: This is this is the 20 minute previews before the movie that you're about to watch. Yep, exactly. Yes. Um, but yeah, that's Massachusetts for you. Massachusetts,
1: great state. Quite a good state. I'm a fan. Yeah. Uh, Next up, we have Michigan. And the most popular true crime book in Michigan is The Red Parts by Maggie Nelson. And it's actually a memoir. Um. And the uh, synopsis that I got from Goodreads really made me want to read it. So it says, one day in March 1969, 23-year-old Jane Mixer was on her way home to tell her parents that she was getting married. She had arranged for a ride through the campus bulletin board at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, where she was one of a handful of pioneering women students at their law school. Her body was found the following morning, just inside the gates of a small cemetery, 14 miles away. She was shot twice in the head and strangled. Six other young women were murdered around the same time, and it was assumed that they had all been victims of the alleged serial killer, um, John Collins, who was convicted of uh, one of these crimes not long after. Jane Mixer's death was long considered to be one of the most uh, one of the infamous. Michigan murders, as they have now been come to know. Um, But officially, Jane's murder remained unsolved, and Maggie Nelson grew up haunted by the possibility that the killer of her mother's sister was still at large. Oh. Yeah. It has a 4.06 out of 5 on Goodreads. And I really like um, true crime memoirs. Like, I, I like when people do all the research, and and compile everything and like give you the whole story. But I like when it comes from one person's point of view that has a connection, like a specific connection to the case. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I'll get to the Michigan murders in a little bit, but again, I have two of the most popular urban legends because I love urban legends. And one of the first is hell's bridge. And that legend starts with a man named Elias Frisk, And he was said to be a deranged old preacher who basically pie-pipered a group of children into the woods near what is now Algoma Township, I think is how you say it. Okay. Uh, He slaughtered them one by one, throwing them from the bridge into the Cedar Creek before he was caught by their parents and hanged, um, but not before he said he was possessed by demons. So today, Hell's Bridge is a creaky, narrow, metal footbridge in the middle of the woods, Uh, where those brave enough to cross it at night claim to hear the voices and screams of of the children that were thrown off of it and um, are sometimes greeted by a black figure with glowing eyes as they cross it. So your typical, like, Haunted Bridge. We'll talk about a couple of them. (laughs) That seems to be a theme with urban legends. And then this one is interesting. As soon as I saw the title of it, I was like, yeah, I'm talking about that. It's the legend of Knock Knock Road. Ah, That's the legend of Caitlin doesn't (laughs) want children. Um, So the legend of Knock Knock Road says that there is a little girl who was murdered on Knock Knock Road, which is actually called Strasburg Road, and it's in the Detroit area. And now she appears to drivers at their car window knocking and trying to find the person who killed her. So another one of your typical, like, ghosts.
0: I was going to say that is not something I ever want to encounter. No. Ever in my life. Well, we talked I'm about good, another thanks. one.
1: There was the um the phantom jogger that like you basically you park in a cemetery and this like apparition of a jogger comes and knocks on your window. There's a lot of those. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Um Michigan's favorite true crime documentary or most searched or most watched is Eileen Warnos, The Selling of a Serial Killer wow never would have guessed and uh, it's a 1993 documentary by Nick Broomfield and he's actually a big documentarian he uh, also did the 2002 documentary Biggie and Tupac which we talked about in our Biggie and Tupac episodes Um, he also did the documentary Kurt and Courtney about Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love in 1998 and he also had another Eileen documentary which I'll talk about From in two thousand three, called Life and Death of a Serial Killer, and then um, another true crime one that that he has is Tales of the Grim Sleeper in twenty fourteen, which again I'll talk about later. Um, But this one, Eileen Warnos, the Selling of a Serial Killer, uh, essentially highlights the exploitation of Warnos by those around her and questions the fairness of her trial given the vested interest of the police at the time. The film was used. by the defense in Warnos's trial in 2001 to highlight the incompetence of Warnos's Warlo- original lawyer and it was through this process that wow. Broomfield decided to make his second film Eileen Life and Death of a Serial Killer. Um for the that's, feature film Monster, that's awesome. yeah, this this documentary had a large impact on the case and other things. So for the feature film Monster, Shirley Theron, who played Eileen Warnos in that movie Used, immaculately also, yes might i say she used this documentary as source material apparently watching clips in between takes in order to perfect her character and for her performance Therone won best actress uh, the best actress actress oscar I'm, like speaking too fast for my own tongue um, um welcome to the club <laughs> but i included this because she won that oscar on what would have been warnos's birthday no fucking way yeah so again shut like, the fuck up if you're playing at home take a shot we'll be getting to eileen warnos eventually um but this documentary has 100 percent on rotten tomatoes 66 percent audience score google score of 83 percent and a 7 out of 10 on imdb so it's a good one you should definitely check it out nick broomfield has a ton of documentaries that you should also check out a ton of true crime stuff um, and like I said about the Michigan murders, he, John Norman Collins is the scariest serial killer of the state. Um, he's called the Michigan murderer, the Ypsilanti ripper and the co-ed killer, which isn't that also Ed Kemper's title? The co-ed killer? The co-ed
0: killer, yes. Um, yeah. and there, I think there's somebody else. I think Bundy was also referred to as the co-ed killer at one point, yeah. or maybe I'm wrong. It's just, I mean... Eventually, I was going to say, eventually you stop running out of unique ideas.
1: That's true. Um, But this guy, uh, between 1967 and 1969, there was a string of highly publicized murders of 13 to 21 year old girls in southeastern Michigan. And the victims were abducted, raped, beaten and murdered, typically by stabbing or strangulation. With their bodies occasionally mutilated after death before being discarded within a 15 mile radius of... Washtenaw County. And that is John Norman Collins and Michigan as a state. That's wild.
0: Yeah. Like that was a wild ride from start to finish. Michigan, I will never
1: doubt you again. Michigan was all right. When I went, it was the 4th of July and like everything was closed for some reason. So I didn't really get a full, oh. uh, um, Appreciation of all that Michigan, specifically Ann Arbor, had to offer.
0: Huh. That's anyway. a, that's unfortunate. Come on. I know. Give her another chance, Michigan. <laughs> I'll go. Yeah. Eventually. All right. Well, next up, you're up. I'm. I must. Yes, I was going to say. I'm assuming I'm up next.
1: Um, we've got Minnesota. Minnesota. Oh, tiacos. Minnesota.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's my touchstone.
1: <laughs> oh, Tiagos. <laughs> <laughs> of course
0: it is <laughs> that's that's how Haley figures out different accents she's just like say All tacos right, and what's whatever. my favorite thing tacos <laughs> how do you say tacos in this accent okay i can say the entire accent now yeah oh, um oh of course but so yes <laughs> so for minnesota's most popular book it's john dillinger slept here a crook's tour of crime and corruption in saint paul 1920 through 1936 which is a 1995 biography by Paul Maccabee, and it's got a 3.95 out of 5 on Goodreads. Mm. And the synopsis is, This book is based on more than 100,000 pages of FBI files and wiretaps, prison and police records, and mob confessions. Interviews with 250 crime victims, policemen, gun malls, and family members of criminals bring these public enemies to life. Crime historian Paul Maccabee takes you inside the bank robberies, gangland assassinations, and police intrigue of St. Paul's 1920s and 1930s gangster era. A- gangster era, excuse me, dear God. Um, <laughs> You'll also find Crook to- Crook's tour maps and more than 130 rare FBI, police, and family photographs. Mm. So yeah, that's the book. Sounds
1: all right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I'd check it out. I'm not um, like I've never been super interested in like uh mob crime. To a degree I have, but I have my reasons and we'll get into them. Yeah. We we'll, Okay. Again, we're going to cover mob.
0: We're going to cover crimes. mob
1: shit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, but yeah, so then their top legend in Minnesota is the Kensington Rune Stone. Mm. Um, And so, basically, in 1898, there was this Swedish-American farmer who found this, like, huge rock on his farm that had symbols that were, like, Nordic in, like, nature history thing. Okay. Um, And he didn't know where it came from. Nobody else has ever been able to figure out where it came from since 1898. So... Like, literally, historians can't figure this shit out, like, why it was there. Okay. Um, because it's also, it's not like Minnesota is on the coastline or anything. Yeah. It's, so, nobody knows, like, how how it got there. Historians have studied it, and I will say that they did debunk the theory that the Vikings found North America before Columbus. But okay. that's basically what everybody says. And otherwise, people are like, "Oh, well, if it wasn't the Vikings, then who did this? Was it the aliens? Like, uh-huh. wh- like, was it like ghosts of the Vikings? Like, who could it be? And what do these ancient symbols say? Because nobody is able to translate them. Either. It wasn't
1: in like uh, a language that we know of, like an it ancient language. It was in uh, Okay." <laughs> um so nobody can translate it no no
0: um yeah no nobody knows what it says nobody knows why it was there nobody knows who put it there All right. so that's their that's their thing and it's pretty cool i was like ooh, i would go visit minnesota for that Can you go see it is it still there i think it is hang on let me just make sure because i'm assuming if they're talking about it as the top um like urban, urban, legend. urban legend in minnesota and it's I not assume, still there. Yeah, I would. <laughs> I I feel like that allows you to assume. Yeah, it's currently located in Alexandria, Minnesota. It was originally um, located in Kensington, Minnesota. Oh, okay. So they moved. And in. and again, the Swedish immigrant, his name was Olaf Omen. All right, strong name. O l o f o h m a n. And I'm sure Olaf O-Man oh was saying O-Man oh when he saw that slab. I'm sure he did. That's all I'm going to say about that. But yeah, it's really cool looking. I do want to know what it says. That's I do cool. want to go see it. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's wild. Because also, it's not like anybody knew those hieroglyphs back in 1898. Yeah. So. Couldn't yeah. just Google it. No, you can't. That wasn't until 1998. No. Um, but so, yeah. So that's that. And then the documentary is Operation Odessa, which we talked about for Kentucky. Uh-huh. I made sure that it was what we talked about. And I didn't do my research before like I did last time. So good. we're good on that count. And next up, our killer for Minnesota, top serial killer, uh-huh. is Michael Paul. It's either Stephanie or Stefani, but it's with a PH, not a Gwen Stefani. Okay. But he was a serial killer who was active between 1980 and 82. And most people would know him better by the other moniker he was called, which is the Weepy Voiced Killer.
1: I've never heard of that. Really? But go
0: on. I'm very interested. Oh, wow. I'm I'm actually, seriously, like I'm actually surprised because once they said that, I was like, oh, it's him. So basically what he would do is after he would kill his victims he would call the police a bunch of times and be like confessing to it saying i did it uh-huh. but doing it completely anonymously and he would speak in this really sad high-pitched like weepy voice oh like he clearly sounded like he felt remorse yeah for what he did gross um so that's how he got the nickname of the weepy voiced killer And so overall, Stephanie killed, or Stefani or whatever it is, he killed three women in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, Kimberly Compton, Kathleen Greening, and Karen Potak. Interesting that all of their first names also start with K. Yeah, that's weird. Yep. But uh, Stephanie Stefani was convicted of the just one murder and Mm. of the attempted murder of another woman. And was sentenced to 40 years. And he died in prison in 1998 from cancer. All right. Yep.
1: And that's Minnesota. 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 My next state is Mississippi. (gasps) Oh, love their barbecue. I haven't been there yet. I'm excited to go there. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: I I will go with you. I will
1: 100% go with you. Well, I can't wait to tell you about their urban legend. But first, I'm going to tell you about the true crime book, which is God Will Cut You Down by John Safran. And the synopsis says, A notorious white supremacist named Richard Barrett was brutally murdered in Mississippi in 2010 by a young black, na- black man named Vincent McGee. At first, the murder well, seemed McGee. to be... <laughs> yes. At first, the murder seemed to be a twist on old uh, deep South race crimes, but then new revelations and complications came to light. Maybe it was a dispute over money uh, rather than race, or maybe, and intriguingly, over sex. John Safran, a young, white, Jewish, Australian documentarian, had been in Mississippi and interviewed Barrett for a film on race. When he learned of Barrett's murder, he returned to find out what happened and became caught up in the twists and turns of the case. During his time in Mississippi, Saffron got deeper and deeper into this gothic southern world, becoming entwined in the lives of those connected with the murder. White supremacists, black lawyers, police investigators, oddball neighbors, uh, the stunned families, and even the killer himself. And the more he talked with them, the less simple the crime and the people involved seemed to be. In the end, he discovered how profoundly indelible uh, and indelibly complex the truth about someone's life and death can be. So... Hmm. This is lots yeah. of twists and turns. Yeah, uh, um, it has a three point six two out of five on Goodreads. I'm I'm about it. Yeah, I would check very that interesting out. Yeah. and a pretty recent crime too. Twenty ten yeah. it happened. So that's wild,
0: that's upsetting,
1: but wild all the same. Yeah, the urban legend from Mississippi is the three legged lady of Nash Road. Oh, yeah. That's one more than most people have. <laughs> yeah. Wait. So here's how she got it. Wait. So, is it a third leg or it is a quote unquote third leg? No, it's a third leg. Okay. Like like a walking leg. Okay. Not like um, a not like a dickin' leg. No. Okay. <laughs> so the legend says that when you drive down Nash Road near Columbus with the headlights turned off, a three-legged woman will chase your car and bang on the hood. Some say that. Uh, The third limb that she has is from an ex-lover that she tore off and sewed to herself. Others believe that uh, Uh, she's the ghost of a mother who got lost searching for her dismembered daughter after all she could find was a severed leg. And um, some people say that she wants to race you across a nearby bridge. So we've heard that legend before. Yep. Not a fun one. Nope. The... Favorite true crime documentary of Mississippi is Brothers Keeper, which you just talked about from Massachusetts. Yep. And the scariest serial killer of Mississippi is John Robert Williams. And Williams was a long haul truck driver who admitted to killing around 30 sex workers that he picked up along his route in the early 2000s. He confessed to murdering a 20 year old woman with the help of his girlfriend. And it was that murder that got him his life sentence plus 20 years and he was possibly the inspiration for a character in a season five episode of criminal minds called solitary man Ooh, yeah it's always criminal minds or law and order svu
0: every time with an yep. honorable mention with the original law and order yeah it's always one of those pretty much which is fine yeah you up I was going to say, can I go now? Yeah. Um, so, yes. So, next up, we've got Missouri, Mazura. Home of one of my favorite college professors. Hello, Susan Campbell. I love you. I miss you. Hello. Um, fun fact. Susan Campbell is not only a warrior for justice, but she's also a Nobel Prize winner. Mmm. Yes. She's a very good journalist. Um, and she has a book right now, and I believe it's called... Out of Frog Hollow. Shit. Um. Well, now that I've brought it up, I've got to find out what it is. So hang on. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on.
1: Well, I was just reading an article that was like the top 50 deadliest cities in the United States. And I think St. Louis is number one right now. Yes, Louis, it is. St. Louis, Missouri.
0: It is. It is. It is. Because my boyfriend's sister is going there to celebrate Christmas. And I Ooh. saw that and I was like, and I, oop. Um you know how the kids say it nowadays uh but yeah so it's called frog hollow stories from an american neighborhood and it's by susan campbell and it is a lovely book um especially if you enjoy history and
1: shit like that but it's not a true crime book no but so segue into your true crime book i'm trying but
0: this is a true crime book thank you um And it is Almost Midnight, An American Story of Murder and Redemption, which is a 2004 novel by Michael W. Cuneo. It's got a 3.82 out of 5 on Goodreads. And the synopsis is, Daryl Meese grew up in the Ozark Mountains of southern Missouri in a slice of rural America where religion flourished and tradition thrived. Everyone said he was a good kid, a bit of a clown maybe, not too serious about his studies, but sweet and kind and quick to make friends. When, as a clean-cut teenager, he signed up with the Army, the people of Reed Springs, Missouri, expected to hear nothing but good things about R.J. and Lexi Meese's eldest son. It wouldn't work out that way. Daryl Mies would end up on the front lines of the Vietnam War and would come home a drug addict. Over the personally tumultuous, drifting decades that followed, he'd make a new name for himself in the Ozarks as a tough drug dealer. Then, in 1987, he gunned down a 69-year-old meth kingpin, his wife, and their 20-year-old paraplegic grandson. After a desperate cross-country escape, he was captured, hauled back to Missouri, and sentenced to death for his crimes. In jail, Mies experienced a religious conversion, and he made a shocking prediction. He would be saved by miraculous intervention. No one believed it would happen, but it did. And on January 27, 1989... Pope John Paul II visited St. Louis and spoke to Missouri's then-governor, Mel Carahan. It was the same date that authorities had set for Mises' execution. The Pope asked that he be spared, and Caranahan agreed. Mm. So that's the story. Synopsis. That's so Um, crazy. That's fucking wild. That's... That is a miracle. Like, quite frankly, like, that's more than just a coincidence. It would be a coincidence if he was not like, yo, I'm going to get saved.
1: Um, Yeah, that's nuts.
0: Yeah. So that could technically, I think, serve as the legend for Missouri itself. (laughs)
1: Yeah, right? That's crazy.
0: But Missouri does have another one. And that would be Momo. Not the Momo that everybody is thinking. That creepy-faced girl that we all know and hate. Mm-hmm. This is Momo, the Missouri monster, who is basically Missouri's but, version of Bigfoot
1: yeah, it's there's so many versions of the, Bigfoot. There are so many
0: versions of Bigfoot, so literally just picture Bigfoot um, but in Missouri, but in Missouri, and because he's in Missouri, that means he's got a pumpkin shaped head, okay. Smells awful, just has really shitty B.O. That's like typical Bigfoot lore, though, that it doesn't smell great. Also that he eats dogs because that's on there. Oh, yeah. All right. Not about that. Um, Also, yeah. And then in 1968, Momo allegedly tried to abduct a four year old boy. Shockingly, no evidence was ever found. Of course not. But yeah, yeah, we've got fucking Momo. We
1: I just I Oh I just don't know, know why. You know how in the last episode uh there was um Fuck. It's I don't okay, remember I what state I was talking about, but it was Chessie, the Chesapeake Bay. Yes, yes,
0: yes, 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 yes. In so. Um, shit. I
1: forget which one it was. But we said that there we thought that there was another Chessie in Maryland. Vermont. Yes, yes yes there is another chessie in vermont it's not chessie it's champ yes it's not Ches. but the, the, the lake the, champlain yes monster. yes but that's champ. what we
0: were saying it was like it was not named chessie but it was the same premise i thought it was the same name it's oh, not the same name it's champ Yeah. no no it was no the one same, corrected it was me the on same it same premise yeah but yes because america saw that loch ness had one and they were like oh no 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 they don't can't get be beat their, now yes, we get two yes we can't not have one <laughs> yeah so here we go and that's it just popped like into my us. head
1: it popped into my head as i was walking uh down to work the other day and i was like oh yeah that's the name of it i gotta that's remember pretty to say cool, it though, that you
0: knew it that you didn't yeah. just like look it up think to look it up
1: nope i just remembered it out of nowhere i'm proud anyway of
0: move on yes yeah, so next we have our true crime documentary and the top true crime documentary in the state is 1987's Sour Grapes, which was directed by Jerry Rothwell and Ruben Atlas and written by Al Morrow, has a 95% on the Rotten Tomatoes tomato meter with a 94% audience score. And the synopsis is Rudy Kerniawan Kurnow- was, it was rumored, a wine savant, had an expert memory for taste, a generous host offering rare wines from his huge cellar who... In 2006, made $35 million in two wine auctions from the sale of his wine. I think that they got the date wrong on Rotten Tomatoes if they're saying this was made in 1987.
1: Yeah, I think I talked about this one... Um, I looked. I do not see it. Georgia. I did.
0: Motherfucker. That's all right. I did it again. Yeah. It happens. It's on Georgia. Oh, but no, but I just said... I did the opposite of that prediction. I I I was like, I'm not gonna get it wrong ever again. And then I did, and here we go. Alright, well happens. we talked about it for Georgia. Yeah.
1: It's on Netflix now. You can go watch it on Netflix. Mm-hmm. I have that down here. Yes. All right. <laughs> okay. Meanwhile. About okay.
0: Excuse me while I take my foot out of my mouth first. Um so the top serial killer in Missouri was Maury Travis. Um he was definitely a murderer but a suspected serial killer in St. Louis County, Missouri. Um he was named in a federal complaint cr- criminal complaint for the murders of two women um at the time in 19 uh, it, at the time he was a hotel waiter and he was on re- parole because he committed a robbery in 1989 and had previously been sent to jail mm-hmm. and Travis claimed in a letter to have murdered 17 women. Um, some authorities were doubtful. Others thought that he may have murdered up to 20 women. Um, but only two women were confirmed to be actually his victims. And that's Alicia Greenwade and Betty James. But before he could be put on trial for the crimes and before they could figure out, OK, well, you're saying 17. We're saying less. Others are saying more. Which is it? Uh, Travis hung himself in his cell on june tenth, two 2002 um he had been put on a suicide watch prior but the guards in the prison fucked it up and travis was able to find a moment when no one was watching him and at that point committed suicide ah yeah but that's maury travis
1: name sounds familiar for some reason it's, it, it this was, was
0: relatively recent i mean it was 2002 yeah. yeah i don't know
1: i don't know either interesting though I try Um, to be when I'm not, you know, being brain dead. (laughs) My next state is Montana. Hi, sis. Hi, Brie. Hi, Gene. Hi, Brie. Power couple. Power couple. They're living in Montana. And uh, they should both probably read this book, which is Missoula by John Crocker. Crocker. Missoula. Yes, I think Bree lives in Missoula, and Jean goes to Missoula a lot. Hi, Bree. Um, well, that would make sense. Yeah. So, Missoula, Montana is a typical college town with a highly regarded state university, a lively social scene, and an excellent football team, the Grizzlies, with a very rabid fan base. The Department of Justice investigated 350 sexual assaults reported by the Missoula police between January 2008 and May 2012. few of these assaults yeah few of these assaults were properly handled by either the university or local authorities in this uh missoula is also typical the doj reported um it it had a report that released um in december of 2014 that estimates 110,000 women between the ages of 18 and 24 are raped each year Crocker's devastating narrative of what happened in Missoula makes it clear why rape is so prevalent on American campuses and why rape victims are so reluctant to report their assaults. Um, it has a 4.09 out of 5 on Goodreads, and I think there was like, a ton, like out of a ton of reviews. So um, very highly rated book, and if it's not triggering for you, I would recommend you read it. It's very eye-opening. Um, the top urban legend of the state is the hitchhiker of Black Horse Lake. And this legend says that when you're driving down a pretty desolate part of Highway 87 near Great Falls, a man in jeans with jet black hair will suddenly slam into your windshield. Cute. And (laughs) yeah. So when you get out to check your car, he'll be gone and there'll be no damage to the windshield as long as you don't fucking crash in fear. I mean, at least he doesn't damage the car. That's true. At least he's thoughtful. I guess. Um, and the uh, favorite true crime documentary of the state is The Disappearance of Madeline McCann. And I'm not even going to explain it because you should listen to our episode 76, which is all about Madeline McCann. Yep. But this this documentary is like a four-part like deep dive into... Um, the events of her kidnapping, disappearance, whatever you want to believe it is, and um, all the events that happen afterwards. So go watch that. Go listen to our episode 76 on it. And the scariest serial killer of the state would be Wayne Nance, uh, also known as the Missoula Mauler. And Wayne Nance was, uh, he had killed around five victims, but was never actually arrested in 1968 yeah it's all right he gets his good uh in 1968 he broke into a suburban home and stabbed a man but the man defended himself and shot nance to death so that's why he was never actually convicted that's that seems like a valid reason because he got got
0: (laughs) no he got shot haley oh sorry (laughs) (laughs) it's okay it happens (laughs) that's montana <laughs> oh god, Hannah Montana. Oh um, god, no. So yeah. Oh yeah, moving on. Um <laughs> next we've got Nebraska. 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 Um, and so to jump right into it, the top true crime book set in Nebraska is Abandoned Prayers, The Incredible True Story of Murder Obsession and Amish Secrets which I was love written. How-
1: I love oh. how all of these true crime books have, like, the title and then a super long, like, yep. secondary title. <laughs> yep. Basically all a book for
0: a title. Yeah. Um. But, yeah, that was written in 1990 by Greg Olson, and it has a 3.79 out of 5 on Goodreads. Mm. And its synopsis is, On Christmas Eve in 1985, a hunter found a young boy's body along an icy cornfield in Nebraska. The residents of Chester, Nebraska, buried him as... Quote, little boy blue, unclaimed and unidentified until a phone call from Ohio two years later led authorities to Eli Stutzman, the boy's father. Eli Stutzman, the son of an Amish bishop, was by all appearances a dedicated farmer and family man in the country's strictest religious sect. But behind his quiet facade was a man involved with pornography, sadomasochism, and drugs. After the suspicious death of his pregnant wife, Stutzman took his preschool age son, Danny and hit the road on a sexual odyssey ending with his conviction for murder. But the mystery of Eli Stutzman and the fate of his son didn't end on the barren Nebraska plains. It was just the beginning. Ooh. And I'm pretty sure I've heard about this one because when they identified a couple of years ago that um, woman who had been Jane Doe for the longest time, they identified her, I want to say, through, like, DNA. Mm Mm-hmm. Little boy blue was mentioned. Okay. So I kind of knew what they were talking about when I was reading the synopsis. But yes, that is the true crime book. Interesting. Yeah, I think it was interesting. He had me at Amish, I'll be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, I mean, TLC makes a killing off it for some reason, and it's because they're interesting. Yeah. Um, and they make excellent furniture. But yeah. So next is the Legend for the state, and that would be Centennial Hall, which started in, like, the 40s. Um, Centennial Hall was once a high school, and students would say that they could hear a, like, warped kind of music. Um, They've seen rocking chairs that are empty start to rock, and they feel cold spots because... According to the legend, a student was playing her clarinet, had a heart attack, and died on the spot, all because the reed of her clarinet had been poisoned.
1: Interesting.
0: Yes, yes.
1: So this seems like, like a very mm, Final Destination
0: right. death. Final Destination meets the Chicago Tylenol murders. Like, if, if yeah, a little Michael bit. Bay... Decided to go in a completely different direction with his filmmaking. This seems about right. Sure. Yeah. But no, next we've got the documentary, the top documentary in the state, which we talked about several episodes ago. 2018's Murder Mountain, the Netflix series. Mm-hmm. And so it's got an 81% audience score. It was directed by Joshua Zemon. It's got six episodes. You can obviously, as I mentioned earlier, watch it on Netflix because it's a Netflix series. Yep. And the synopsis is exploring Humboldt's marijuana farms both legal and illegal and providing a glimpse into what it takes for an outlaw farmer to cross over to the legal market. But we've discussed this and you can go back and listen.
1: Yeah, that's like Humboldt County, um, California, right? Yep. That's That's like way north. Way super north. Like Like the most north you could be. Yes, I was going to say
0: like Almost Oregon north. Oregon. God damn it. I'll get Oregon. there eventually.
1: Yeah, I was in Humboldt County. I went to, I think Trinidad is in Humboldt County. Um, poss- possibly. Uh, I know that Eureka is because everything said Humboldt there. Um, yeah. There's like a it couple is. other places that I went in Northern California that were around there. And uh, I did hear people talking about the Murder Mountain series because apparently that's one of their big anecdotes.
0: Yep. And yeah. it is, I just looked it up, it is, in fact, in Humboldt County. Yep. And it's eight miles north of the Arcata Eureka Airport. Yeah. Okay. Alright. Um. But next we've got our killer for Nebraska. And obviously it's gotta be Charles Starkweather who was covered mm-hmm. as being half of a killer couple that Haley did. Um... For those who don't remember, Starkweather murdered a bunch of people in Nebraska and Wyoming between 1957 and December 1957, January 1958, Um, Mm -hmm. when he was 19. Then he killed another 10 victims between January 21st and January 29th, 1958, and the only reason he stopped was because he got arrested. And during his crime spree, he was accompanied by his
1: 14-year-old girlfriend, Carol Ann Fugate we have an episode on that. I don't remember the number, but you killer can go and couples. listen it. To- killer couples. Is it killer couples? Or did I do did I do a full episode on them?
0: No, I, I don't remember. Cuz I thought we were going to do Paul and Carla as a full episode. Oh, that's true. And yeah. because we were going to fun fact for those who did not know, we were going to do Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka as a part of our killer couples episode and we did there's just
1: too much information there
0: was too much just like with charles starkweather and Caroline fugate as i am now looking at, yep i just looked notes. it up <laughs> yep so <laughs> episode 57. Right. so i'm on i'm on neutral ground i was wrong about one but i was right about one that's okay
1: that's fine episode that's 57 Nebraska. is charles starkweather and Caroline Fugate. So go listen to that yeah for more info go yeah yes my next state is nevada 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 Nevada. Nevada. i
0: think it's nevada nevada i don't remember i I, i've been corrected i don't remember what it is exactly Nevada. all i know is that vegas is fun
1: yeah well i'm gonna be talking about vegas because vegas vegas (laughs) because you're going to vegas (laughs) the yes and the true crime book from nevada nevada whatever it is is obviously um casino love and honor in las vegas oh yes nicholas nicholas Pileggi? peleggy that's what i'm saying okay okay so it's the same author that did the best-selling mafia expose wise guy oh, okay. and this is the inside story of the billion dollar gambling industry and the secret dangerous mm-hmm. men who run it
0: Yup. it's basically the personification of andy garcia's character in oceans 11 or whatever oceans number it was where they robbed the casino
1: yeah it has a 4.02 out of 5 on goodreads that's not bad at all no that's that's pretty good and do you want to guess what the top urban legend in this state is um it's a big one (sighs) the the
0: Loch Ness monster of that channel that you go gondola riding in
1: no it is area 51 that makes no fucking sense it's not near Vegas the area 51 is
0: I'm, in Nevada never mind yeah it is I'm just thinking Vegas never mind carry on Vegas just, is not I'll a state you being
1: stupid <laughs> I know now uh, so yeah area 51 is probably the most famous urban legend of all time and um it said that everything from time travel to genetic experiments and even alien autopsies are commonplace at area 51 um the us government officially states that area 51 is a is classified due to national security so no one really knows what's going on there and but we all uh, know yeah at the risk of beating a dead horse at this point we will get to area 51 at a different time um the most popular true crime documentary in the state is Tales of the Grim Sleeper, which I just talked about. Um, it's a 2014 documentary by Nick Broomfield. And hey,
0: Nick Broomfield. Yeah, yeah. That's another it, one we like.
1: Yes. It's about the California serial killer Lonnie Davis Franklin Jr., who is also known as the Grim Sleeper. Uh, it has a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. 77% audience score, 84% Google score, and a 7 out of 10 on IMDb.
0: Oh, is that all?
1: Yeah. I don't know if it's available on Netflix or anything. I didn't see it when I looked it up. But at the time of recording this, that is true. I don't know any other time. Um, The scariest serial killer of the state is Carol Cole. And Cole was born in Iowa, but killed around 35 people, mostly women, um, some in Nevada, but also in California and Texas. Um, but the death sentence was uh, brought down upon him in Nevada. So when he was a kid, one of his primary school friends teased him for having a girl's name. So cold um, drowned him. Uh, not
0: a good enough reason to drown somebody.
1: Yeah. I'm just going to say he, it. Yeah. So then he went to kill a bunch of people. Uh, he was executed in 1985. There are two books by Michael Newton that talk about Cole, uh, 1992's Hunting Humans, the Encyclopedia of Serial Killers, Volume 1, and 2014's Silent Rage, Inside the Mind of a Serial Killer. So, more of his story is in those two books. Okay. And that's Nevada. Nevada. Nevada, Nevi. Nevi. You up? Okay. I'm up. I know. I'm just... I'm just... I don't want to...
0: Just jump on your conclusion. Okay. So, finally, I have New Hampshire. New and Hampshire. I think it's very ironic how I've been getting all of the... Um... Hi, Marzia. Did you hear that? No. Oh. Well, Is it a she's... cat hello? Yeah, she's chatting. Good. Um, and Marzia rarely chats, so it must have been important. I don't know what she said, but it must have been important. Um, But I think it's really funny how I've been getting all of the New England states, or so it feels. Yeah. Yeah, But anyway. Yeah. So next I've got the top true crime book, and that is Judgment Ridge, which is a 2003 novel by Dick Lair and Mitchell Zukoff. Got a 3.83 out of 5 on Goodreads. And the synopsis is, On a Cold Night in January 2001, The Idyllic Community of Dartmouth College, was shattered by the discovery that two of its most beloved professors had been hacked to death in their own home. Good, Yeah. Investigators searched helplessly for clues linking the victims, Half and Susan Zantop, to their murder or murderers. A few weeks later, across the river in the town of Chelsea, Vermont, police cars were spotted in front of the house of high school senior Robert Tulloch. The police had come to question Tulloch and his best friend, Jim Parker, Soon, the town discovered the incomprehensible reality that Tullock and Parker, two of Chelsea's brightest and most popular sons, were now fugitives, wanted for the murders of Half and Suzanne Santop. Authors Mitchell Zukoff and Dick Lair provided a vivid explication of a murder. Is explication? I guess so. Um, Sure. Explication of a murder that captivated the nation, as well as dramatic revelations about the forces that turned two popular teenagers into killers. Judgment Ridge conveys a deep appreciation for the lives and the devastating loss of half and Suzanne Zantop, while also providing a clear portrait of the killers, their families and their community, and perhaps a warning to any parent about what evil may lurk in the hearts of boys. Mmm. They only want one thing, you know, Haley. Murder. Truly. Yes, that's what they want. What they really, Mm -hmm. really want. So next we've got the top legend for the state's. And that would be Goody Cole, the Witch of Hampton, not to be Ooh. confused with Goody Proctor, the Witch of the Salem. Witch of- <laughs> yes. um, so Eunice Goody Cole was the only woman in the history of New Hampshire to be tried for witchcraft. And she was tried multiple times. Um, her first charge was in... They just in, couldn't let it go. They really couldn't. Her first charge was in 1950. Uh, Jesus Christ. Her first charge was in 1656, and she was then charged again after she got off in 1671 damn like they could not let it go leave a bitch alone over a decade later that's 15 years later they're like no we can't let this go yeah um so finally when she died and her body was recovered the townspeople it was rumored put a stake through her heart to keep her from haunting the town Mm -hmm. um but people continue to blame her for anything that bad that like anything bad that would happen to the citizens of hampton for mm-hmm. the past three hundred years plus. Yeah, um, just
1: because you lost your car keys, it's not her fault, Todd. Exactly.
0: Thank you. <sighs> God damn. Fucking right, Chad. Um <laughs> so for example, there was a boat full of Hampton residents um that capsized and everyone on board drowned. Um, mm-hmm. even though some of them were in swimming distance from shore. Well, they just can't swim. Yeah, exactly. But that's not Goody Cole's fault, but no. people still blamed her for it and the, they said the that the they The captain Derek <laughs> <laughs> I'm just making it random white guy. <laughs> our favorite our favorite pastime. Yep. Not even just white white guys. It's all your fault. <laughs> Cheryl um So yeah, so people blamed Goody Cole for the crash and said that she cursed the passengers by having them forget how to swim. <laughs> No. Wow. Donna just never fucking bothered to learn. Yeah, right? It's not her fault that they didn't teach it in P.E. class in 1956. Okay, boomers. So mm-hmm. next, after we've gotten off that tangent, we've got our true crime documentary, which is just fucking Paradise Lost again. Mm-hmm. And so that brings us to our killer, Terry Rasmussen, also known as the Chameleon Killer, also Ooh. known as Bob Evans and he was known for using a ton of aliases in his crime sprees such as bob evans um and the spree spanned decades upon decades across states and states Mm -hmm. um he died in prison in 2010 after being convicted in the 2002 murder of his common law wife in california However, he received the most media attention after his death when it was announced that he was the primary suspect in the Bearbrook murders, which are also known as the Allenstown Four, which was four young female murder victims, two of whom were discovered in 1985 and two were discovered in 2000 at Bearbrook State Park in Allenstown, New Hampshire. Um, It's believed that the girls, even though they were found in 85 and 2000, It's believed that they actually died sometime between 1977 and 1981 based on decomp. Wow. But what really got me was criminologist Jack Levin stated that Rasmussen is unlike any other serial killer he ever studied or profiled. And said, quote, what distinguishes Rasmussen from most serial killers is that he targeted people with whom he had a relationship. Most serial killers would never do that. It's the last thing they would do. Instead, they focus on complete strangers. Yeah. End quote. But not That's Rasmussen. so weird. Yeah, he's super fucked. And he's dead now, so we don't really need to worry about him that much unless he decides to pl- pull a goodie coal and just drown the shit out of people. Yeah. Or rather not drown them and get blamed for it, but I
1: mean. Whatever. Whatever. And obviously, if you're listening to true crime podcasts, you know about Bear Brook, which is very yes. very popular true crime podcast that covers um that entire case so go ahead and listen to that if you want to hear more information about that case specifically yes. my last state is my
0: i'm sorry did you hear my cat just sneeze in my face <laughs> no i hope that's it on just, the recording though it just walked up to me and sneezed in my face
1: good that's love right there that's about as much love as you can expect out of a cat. Oh,
0: God. Why would you do this to me?
1: Anywho. Yes, moving on. My last state is my home state, and it's New Jersey. Hey, you
0: I was going to say, do you want me to cheer, or do you want me to not oh, lie to you?
1: Jersey's the best. So you want me to lie to you? Anyway. Yay. The true crime book of... Jersey is The Good Nurse, a true story of medicine, madness, and murder by Charles Graber. And the synopsis is After his December 2003 arrest, registered nurse Charlie Cullen was quickly dubbed the angel of death by the media. But Cullen was uh, a no mercy killer. He was no mercy killer, nor was he a simple monster. He was a favorite son, husband, beloved father, best friend, and celebrated caregiver. Implicated in the death of as many as 300 patients, he was also perhaps the most prolific serial killer in American history. This book has a 3.79 out of 5 on Goodreads. And we'll talk more about a couple of different angels of death because that's like the um, umbrella term for um, somebody in the uh, medical field that kills a lot of people. Yeah. So we'll talk more about Charlie Cullen and, yeah, um, some more well-known ones, too. Um, the top urban legend from New Jersey from the list that we found on Thrillist is the Westfield Watcher. <laughs> and Never obviously heard you of can, them! <laughs> you can listen to the, our episode, our uh, full episode on The Watcher, which is uh, episode 77 of our podcast. But there's... We've also covered a couple of other Jersey legends, because obviously I want to cover legends close to home. So we've also covered the Jersey Devil, which is our 15th episode, and we did an episode driving down Clinton Road, which is um another popular urban legend in Jersey, and that was episode 27. So uh, go listen to a couple different urban legend from Jersey stories, but... um another little teaser of something that I want to talk about eventually is I'm just going to cover uh, all of weird New Jersey because it is, that is something that like, I think they have a couple of them in like different States now, like little offshoots, but weird New Jersey was a, I think it started as a magazine in New Jersey uh, talking about like little local quirks and urban legends and, and stories and stuff like that. And then it became a book. And then um, one of my favorite comedians who worked on the magazine, Chris Gethard, he ended up writing Weird New York. So it kind of spawned like a whole different thing. But Weird New Jersey is a weird phenomenon that I want to talk about in a whole episode. So that will cover a lot more urban legends.
0: We've mentioned it previously. I'm trying to think. I know we definitely mentioned it when we drove down the haunted road that episode. But then because it's, say, it's in there. Yeah, I want to say you mentioned it for, uh, like, other ones too, though. I'm trying to remember, I can't remember now which ones besides, yeah. like, the obvious.
1: There's a couple of real great stories in there, so I'll talk about that eventually. But um, to finish out this episode, the favorite true crime documentary of New Jersey is The Fear of 13, which we talked about um, with Iowa and Indiana, so go listen back to that. And then the scariest serial killer of the state is Robert Zerinsky. And he killed up to 10 people in the late 1950s before getting arrested in 1975. He was given a life sentence for one of the murders, but died from respiratory issues while on trial for another in 2008. (coughs) And that's that. Well, partially that what's partially that
0: we're not quite done with the states we're just we done not? with this episode
1: we, yeah we're done with this episode yes that's that's almost that we'll get that's there. that for this episode yes uh before we go i wanted to do our shout outs for um december for our patreon supporters and that would be camilla mckenna sin turtle shannon and janny Okay. So, yay. Haley Thank has the you. list in front of
0: her. I do not. I do.
1: But I trust that
0: that's correct. And I know who all of those people are. So, there we go. Yeah. Frequent flyers. We talked to all of them. Yes. That's, I like that. Frequent flyers.
1: Yeah. Yes. Thank you to all of you guys for supporting the podcast this month. And we love you very much. We do. We truly do. We love you. If you we appreciate you. I can't think of anything else that we could say. If you want to get your name shouted out on the podcast, then you can donate to our Patreon. You can donate as little as a dollar, as much as whatever you want. And you can find that, the link to the Patreon on our website, which is crimeculturepodcast.tumblr.com. And there you can find all of the other links to our social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, all that stuff. And I think that's that. Yeah, I think we covered I'm coughing everything. now. Oh, so, yeah. you got what I got. Yeah. I made Haley sick. And we're not even in the same place. I was going to say from 3,000 <laughs> miles away. Yeah.
0: That's how it works. All right, Marcia, no. <laughs> Uh-oh. Did, did you hear her? I, She's climbing I on the like,
1: laptop. Yes, I heard like the, the microphone rustling.
0: Yes, because she climbed on the laptop. She was very curious about what was on screen. And then she gave her little, like, grumpy purr. Mm. She's so cute, but now is not the time. But I think that means, I think that's her way of saying,
1: it's time to say goodbye. It (laughs) is time to say goodbye. So we will see you next Tuesday. Yes, we will. Bye. Bye.